Welcome to Skylights, the podcast of Open Sky Wilderness Therapy. Nestled in the mountains of southwest Colorado and the canyonlands of southeast Utah, Open Sky transcends traditional wilderness therapy by emphasizing treatment for the whole family. Our clinical approach integrates the latest in evidence-based treatments with innovative and research-driven holistic healing practices. On each episode of the Skylights podcast, we speak with experts in the field of wilderness therapy and explore the unique value the outdoors provides on the journey towards wellness, self-discovery, and growth for adolescents, young adults, and their families. To learn more about Open Sky, visit us at openskywilderness.com. Welcome to the podcast. We're glad you're here. At Open Sky, we often work with teens and young adults who may have been resistant to traditional talk therapy. Today, we will be discussing how parents and family members can support children with this kind of resistance during their time in wilderness therapy. Joining us on the podcast today is clinical therapist Mark Sobel. Mark received his bachelor's degree in psychology from the University of Rochester and a master's of social work from Fordham University in New York City. Mark has extensive therapeutic experience working with children, adolescents, and families, and approaches his work with deep care and empathy. His cornerstone values are compassion and authenticity, and he acknowledges that growth requires both discomfort and hope. Welcome, Mark. Thanks for joining us today. Yeah, thank you. So let's jump right in. Mm. What exactly do we mean when we say treatment-resistant? Yeah, it can be a broad term, but I really think of it as two things. One, it refers to clients who have not responded effectively in the past to medication or therapy to address some of their mental health issues. And it can also refer to the general attitude and presentation that a student has in terms of their openness or willingness to engage in their own work. So oftentimes, treatment-resistant students will show up as more deflective, less accepting of the process, and give a pushing back when it comes to actually jumping into their own process. Mm -hmm. And it can be really natural because from a young person's perspective, something that many adults have is an agenda, which doesn't often leave much room for what the student actually wants. So when it feels like the agenda of the therapist, of the parents, of the teachers is really at the forefront, but there's not much conversation around what actually from the kid's perspective is the problem and what is it that they want to work on, of course they're going to be resistant to it. Right, right. And it's tricky because parents need to have an agenda, like if they're guiding, you know, or leading the child in that way, but how to hold that. Yeah, yeah. It's a tricky balance of holding that agenda and holding boundaries while also recognizing the experience of a student, which is very different than necessarily enabling it or even agreeing with it, but Mm. to validate, to recognize that it's very real from that student's perspective isn't mutually exclusive to the parents also holding on to their own agenda and their perspective, but it can be tough. It's, Mm -hmm. yeah, it can feel like more art than science. So what can that look like breaking down the idea of treatment resistance? Yeah. So it's important to look through it, I think, from the lens of what are they actually doing when they're being treatment resistant? They're not doing it for no reason. And it's to meet this need 
fundamentally of feeling a sense of agency and power and control. And the way that that shows up is really looking through, is this person meeting that need by actually being resistant? It can run the gamut from either completely shutting down and completely withdrawing, students being in their rooms for 10 hours a day. When it comes time to go to therapy, just planting their flag and digging in their heels and saying no. Or it can look a lot more loud and effusive and become an argument. And either is a person trying to find a sense of control. And the way that that looks when they get here most often is in refusal. It can feel a lot more empowering and be lower hanging fruit to gain power by refusing something that you think an authority figure is telling you to do, which can look really simple, like refusing to hike, refusing to move with the group, refusing to eat. A lot of it is just in this, I'm going to gain power by saying no. And it serves that need, but again, it's that low hanging fruit. You know, when a student is doing that, I look at that through the lens of, wow, this person is making a really, really desperate attempt to get some power. How desperate must they be? How much pain must they be in? And how much power must they feel like they don't have where that's the only tool that they have to feel in control of their own lives by saying no? Mm -hmm. Yeah, I'm thinking of a girl I worked with years ago who didn't talk in therapy. We probably did like the first month of her stay. Mm. And we would just sit quietly or hike. I'm sure you've worked with a lot of students who maybe have gone to therapy in the past, but just like sit there, don't want to talk. Yeah. And I think it shows up for parents too, in ways that are more natural than even in therapy. You know, there's, it's almost a cliche because it happens so often, the kind of, you know, oh, how was school? Fine. Oh, what'd you do today? Nothing. Right. Like, can you tell me anything? Whatever. It's the one word answers. It's really actually rooted in this belief that it's not really an authentic question, that there isn't genuine interest in actually understanding it. I think when a student feels that, A, from their therapist, that there's genuine interest in understanding, or from their parent of like, no, I actually want to know what happened at school today. Like, help me understand what is it like to be you. It's pretty disarming. So I think oftentimes that resistance is self-protective because it's steeped in this belief that, well, why am I going to open up when my experience is that other people don't actually consider my experience valid? Yeah. So do you have examples or even like how you've been informed in your work about how to create this experience? Yeah, I would say it is pretty common for adolescents to show up in wilderness therapy and not be immediately bought in. And I start out most first sessions the same way, which is sharing with students, you know, I could speak to your parents, I could speak to your teachers, I could speak to all of your past therapists. And that's great. But I actually really just want to hear from you. Why are you here? And just that question alone seems to be pretty disarming. Mm. Most adolescents are used to being told things, not actually asked questions. So in terms of bringing this to life, an example of that question of like, I really want to understand your experience right now. Maybe describe more what that can look like here or a personal, like just bringing that to life in a more personal way. What comes to mind is that 
kind of old adage of, you know, you don't remember what people say. You just remember how they make you feel. Mm, I love that. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And when I think of that for myself, it's one of the first memories that I have of feeling like an adult understood me. And I must have been nine years old. I was at summer camp. I was being picked on by some other kids. And a counselor came up to me and was just honest, took the kid gloves off and spoke to me like a person, just kind of recognizing, wow, man, I I saw that. that. That looked really difficult. Are you okay? And I don't remember his name. I don't remember any like secret pearls of wisdom, but I remember just that first experience that I have of feeling like, oh, this person sees what happened. They see me. They are asking me an actual question. And again, I don't remember what they said. I don't remember what I said, but just that intrinsic feeling of that relief of, oh, someone cares about actually seeing me is an incredibly powerful thing something that a lot of adolescents are not very used to. And I think that it can be both seeing someone the way that they're suffering and also holding them accountable. I think that those can coincide. What I've seen with so many students is just like the story that you were sharing, Emily, where, you know, that girl stonewalling you and kind of sitting in silence. I think it's easy to kind of see that as, oh, this this kid is testing me. And really it's self-protective because with being open, which is the opposite of resistant, which, you know, it involves acceptance. And in order to be open, it's a two-sided coin. Because on one side, there's this beauty to it of, I'm open, there's possibility for growth, there's spaciousness. And on the other side, it's, I'm vulnerable, I'm exposed, I could get hurt. And Oftentimes, I find when students are giving those one-word answers or they're just shutting down or they're stonewalling, part of it is self-protective and also, let me see if I can get this other person to do all of the work because it's way too scary for me to actually open up. And I found even naming that with students can be really helpful. You know, I was with a student recently and I was sitting with them and I was just feeling the wall go up, the brick wall. And at one point we sat in silence and I just looked at them and I said, so does this, does this work for you, this thing you're doing? And they were like, well, what do you mean? I was like, this thing where you sit there and I ask you a question and you don't give me an answer. And then you kind of hope that maybe I'll go away. And then maybe you'll tell me what you think I want to hear. Like, has this worked for you? He said, actually, yeah. Like most, yeah, yeah. <laughs> most therapists it has. It gets them off my back. And I was like, yeah, but does that work for you? Like, I bet it works in the short term, but yeah, then they're off your back. And then like nothing actually changes. And from then on, the wall felt down. And even though I was challenging this person, really what I was doing was seeing that they were holding up a wall to protect themselves. And I think like being playful and being honest, I don't know, students are more resilient than we give them credit for. I love that when it's naming a difficult dynamic, you're able as the adult to step outside the dynamic of not like taking it personally or getting upset that he's not answering your questions or am I not being a good enough therapist or what does it mean? I mean, that example with the girl did press me Mm. because it took like three or four sessions, but I had this sense that she just needed some time to trust and to warm up. And eventually like she did, it was amazing in terms of just really shifting and going some places here and therapy. And, but like she needed time to build that trust. Patience can be really difficult. 
I think especially for parents to create and hold that space. And I think the important thing is to not get on the emotional roller coaster with that kid, with the student, which is so much easier said than done. You know, the idea of being curious and being emotionally detached and the saying that kind of comes to my mind is the goal is to be with someone while they're in pain, not be in their pain with them. Mm. Which again, it's so much easier said than done. Right. And it's really hard if it's your yeah. child who you care about more than anything. Almost impossible, I think, to say to anyone of don't be affected by this person who you care about more than anyone in the world. And that's really not what it's about. It's not about being unaffected or being detached. It's about not riding their emotional wave with them, which means you have to recognize your own emotional response, that it could be really anxiety-inducing for parents to witness their child experiencing anxiety or frustrating when their child is being resistant to them or to treatment and kind of on the outside, it looks like they're not, they're not trying, I think is kind of the simplest mm. way to put it because mm -hmm. that's what it can look like. And the amount of effort that they're putting in to not try is actually pretty tremendous. It takes, it takes a lot of effort to wait out a therapist yeah. and sit for 45 minutes with your arms crossed and to be that protective. That is not a passive thing to do but it looks like it. Mm -hmm. Right. So the term resistant, it's kind of like resistant to another way of being. Yeah. I think underneath it, it's resistance to the possibility of failure because there is one tried and true way to avoid failure and it's not to make an attempt. And the reality is for so many students, when they arrive in wilderness, have a lot of what they perceive and have internalized as failures. They've often tried so many different other types of interventions and worked with various therapists and tried a variety of things. And socially, with their families, in school, they've often just internalized this sense of when I try, things don't go very well for me. So there's a there's some evidence. It's mm -hmm. fair for them to show up here with this skepticism of, well, why is this going to be any different? I've tried so many things. They don't work. And it hurts when they don't. It just reinforces this belief that I have of myself that I can't do things. So they need to start building up that evidence because they have these uneven weights, these uneven scales. So the self-protection is, from their perspective, also based in reality. Mm -hmm. So it can be a really tough thing to challenge a student on of, I know that you have no reason to believe that you're capable, but give this one a shot. Mm. And it's about incrementally having them start finding little successes that makes them actually question this narrative that they have, that they're, quote, a failure. So, Mark, I know you've worked in a variety of different settings, you know, more of the one-on-one -on -one therapy setting, more of the residential longer term, and now wilderness. What can you speak to in terms of what this environment provides that creates an environment for addressing treatment resistance? Mm. It's intrinsic in the environment are these opportunities to succeed and have all these little micro successes, which is different than I think a typical outpatient setting. Yeah, and, and it shows up in these really, really powerful but very natural ways. And it can be really basic things. By success, it can be a student who feels like they are not capable of taking care of their own body. Like that's something that they feel dependent on others to 
remind them when to eat, to make all of their food for them, to do all of their laundry. They don't have this internalized experience of I'm even capable of getting myself through my day. And the level of accountability that they have while being coached to do these things, it's incremental. And the more that a student has these little successes in wilderness, the more that they're able to start believing, huh, when I try things, I actually feel better. It's hard to break those patterns. I think a big difference in the wilderness environment too, to just individual therapy or outpatient is that there's a community, there's a team. I think so often therapy can be about, well, let's focus on what's not going well for you and where the issues are. The second half of that is, okay, and how can you actually practicing feeling success? How can you work through those issues and not just talk about it theoretically? And that's where kind of the proof is in the pudding, where we can talk about and identify what's been a real challenge for a student in session. And then actually they have the opportunity to practice stepping outside of their comfort zone throughout the week in a place where they're held accountable by their teammates and also by, by the guides. It's different than taking a really good idea or identifying a challenge that comes up in therapy, but then not actually putting it into practice because, yeah, these days community is something that is hard to come by for a lot of young people, especially in person. So there's something just intrinsic about the environment because they're on a team. They're surrounded by other people who are also working on their their own issues. I think that's a big part of it as well is that it becomes normalized to be brave and normalized to be courageous. And that is really rare. So, you know, with all of this, it's always easier when we're not working with our own family. If I'm thinking of being a parent listening, it's like, okay, you make it sound pretty easy. Like, what are things that parents can do? And what does this look like for a parent? It's so easy to talk about it. And it, make, yeah, it makes me think of how enlightened and insightful and mature I think I am until I go home to my family and like regress to being 17 years <laughs> old again. And all of those same things come up. And I think first, recognizing that there's some reality in that, that it's an unfair ask of yourself to completely detach from your child's emotional experience. I think the first thing you can start with is noticing your own. In order to get off of that emotional roller coaster of feeling whatever your child is feeling and being in their pain with them is to slow down enough to notice that that's what's happening and to give yourself the space to take care of yourself. Because it's, it's true. It's going to be you know, this is a person who you love, who you feel so protective of. It's not going to feel easy to just sit in their discomfort with them. Yeah. So I don't want to make it sound easy that it's just, oh, just be a curious observer. Right, right. You know, just, just take a step back. Just It should be that easy. I think the first thing is slowing down enough to realize when you're not. And yeah, so often the question that I'll get from parents is, well, what tool should I use? How should I respond if my students doing this? What should I do in this situation? You know, what, what would the perfect parent do? And gosh, it's just so much pressure. I think it doesn't really matter how big your toolkit is unless you can slow down enough to realize, whoa, I am completely caught up in my child's experience. I need to look down at what tools are at my disposal. So I think practicing what your child is practicing, which is so much of it is mindfulness. 
even that's a term that I get a lot of resistance from, from students or a lot of eye rolling or, you know, just the idea of mindfulness is something that I've, especially young people, I don't know, they have this kind of idea of what that means. And it's, oh God, here's another therapist telling me to practice a mindfulness skill. And I think of it as you're just selectively noticing things. That's a really powerful thing that you can do, which is you get to choose what you're paying attention to. So for parents, when I say mindfulness, it's really pay attention to yourself. Pay attention to your own body when you notice that like your heart starts beating and you feel adrenaline coursing through your veins. Okay, it's time to slow down a bit because you are now on the emotional roller coaster with your kid. Adolescents, and I believe almost everyone, we all want the same thing, which is to be heard, which is to feel like someone just gets it. And I think practically speaking for parents, this idea of, okay, so what does that look like? Like in a tangible way, being a curious observer, I think you could even start with being curious about like name the elephant in the room of the resistance that you're feeling, but not in an accusatory way, but in a genuinely curious way. And this could look like saying to your child, man, I'm I feel like I'm reaching out and I'm I'm asking you questions and I'm getting one word answers and I kind of feel like I'm I'm reaching out to you and I'm getting my hand slapped away. What's going on for you right now? Like what's it like for you that I keep pushing and I'm asking you these questions? And I bet that's not a question that kids ever heard from you. It's amazing. Yeah, kind of watching those walls often melt away. And that's the curiosity is this is maybe an oversimplification, but asking questions that you actually really want answers to, non-rhetorical questions. Asking, you know, not like, what is wrong with you? Why are you fighting me so hard on this when I'm trying to help you? Then you're setting that up for a battle. But an actual question of what is going on for you right now? You're here. Like I can, I can see you pulling away. Like what's just, what's, what's going on? Mm-hmm. And then listen. And then this is going back to just such a basic skill that we talk about with the students and we talk about on a lot of the pathway classes, which is reflecting, which is just repeating back what you hear your child actually sharing with you. And uh, it's such a powerful tool because they're, you're giving them that experience of feeling heard, of being seen, and it no longer becomes an argument that really opens the door for them to gain some power, which is what this is all about. Like appropriate power. Appropriate power. Power over their own emotions and accountability over what their experience is without being told what it should be or is or isn't. Well, I love seeing how you show up with young people and just in relationship, Mark. I experience that in interacting with you of just like presence, curiosity. There's this interest in just getting to know the other person that I've experienced. So like I can see how your students would feel that too. And yeah, this is hard stuff we're talking about, but you know, I think finding those ways to practice. Yeah. I'd say nine times out of 10. Yeah. If I'm with a student and they're just showing up as resistant and just trying to close off and push away. Yeah. I'd say nine times out of 10. If I try and make it about like, you know, I'm here, I'm trying to help you. Why won't you let me in? They're just going to retreat. But at the same time, nine times out of 10 with a student like that, especially if it's when they first get 
Tope and Sky, and I just sit down with them. I'm like, okay, you're sitting on the ground across from this dude with a beard who you've never met before, and I'm trying to get you to talk about your feelings. This is pretty weird, right? Can we just acknowledge that this is not like a typical Wednesday for you? And nine times out of 10, I'll just get like, yeah, what is going on? And I'm like, well, I don't know. Like, you tell me what is going on. How did this happen? What's it like? Tell me about your day. What's this first day been like for you? This has all got to be new, right? Nine times out of 10, they're dying to share their experience. The reason that someone won't share their experience with you or they close off isn't because they don't want to. It's because they think you won't listen or they think that you'll twist their words. But as soon as they know, oh, like I'm going to be heard, oh, people open the floodgates because it's a human need. Well, and I like that example that you give for parents modeling after your example. It's like, you know, maybe just asking about what their days are like at open sky or expressing interest or, oh, I heard this from the therapist that you've been working really hard on your fire or, you know, just something to kind of maybe surprise the dynamic too of like, oh, okay, I don't need to talk about this thing that's like really big and scary for me to talk about or what I'm expecting the therapist or the parent to want me to talk about. Yeah, being in the here and now, because that's what's probably going to feel really salient to your child. And the hard part, though, it's so important, is leaving room for the struggle as well and validating the struggle. I think it can be such a totally natural knee-jerk reaction to want to silver lining a challenge or offer unconditional belief and validation. So if your child is struggling in any way, I think the impulse as a parent is to want to give them hope and, oh, it's not so bad. You can get through it. I believe in you. And what they really need in that moment is to be seen. Like, wow. Yeah, that does sound hard. I can see that this is really difficult for you. How are you managing it? Which is really difficult to do. It's accepting that your child's successes are going to be their successes, but also that their struggles are theirs. In that way, you're sending real hope. You're sending this message. It's kind of undertone message of, I believe you're strong enough to do this. Yes, I love that. Because when there is the rescuing from that Mm -hmm. experience or wanting to take away the pain, there is this message of like, I don't believe you can handle it. As you're talking about this dynamic, I just think that's so true. Yeah. And it's a natural impulse. Mm -hmm. Yeah. If as a parent, you have that impulse to rescue your child when they're suffering, that just means you're a human being. Right. (laughs) And you care. And you care, which is why it's so important to notice when it's happening and to take a step back because it's going to be a totally natural, automatic impulse. And the messaging, it's a bit paradoxical. By stepping in and rescuing, the message you're sending is, you can't do this without me. And the message when you actually validate, wow, that, yeah, I see you're struggling. How are you managing that? What are you learning? Share with me how you are managing that better this week than you were able to last week, because I bet that's really hard. Then you're really actually sending this message of, you can do this because I know you're strong enough. Oh, well, lovely to talk today, Mark. Yeah, likewise. And thank you for being on the podcast today. Yeah, thank you. Thanks to our guest today, Open Sky clinical therapist, Mark Sobel. To learn more about Mark and Open Sky's programs, visit openskywilderness.com. And if you enjoyed this episode, please be sure to rate and review us on your podcast app of choice. Thanks for listening.